0: Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for all that you give to us. Lord, we thank you for this fourth week of Advent. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you give to us to ready ourselves for your arrival, looking back as you first came, and to look forward to your kingly, arri- your kingly arrival when you will come again in great glory. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would use these words of Scripture to cleanse our hearts, to help us cast off the works of darkness, to help us be sanctified in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's a very powerful image still to my mind. I was in Europe, and Italy particularly, and we were touring the great cathedrals. We went, had just gone through the Duomo in Florence, which maybe some of you have visited. And if you've been there, you see the magnificent frescoes, the paintings, the tombs of the great people of Florence, the high altar, the beautiful cross, It was all something to behold. And we went down the street to a very small church. And in that church, there was a very small choir singing evening prayer. And you could hear it coming out onto the street through the open doors. And I walked into the church, and I was just struck by it. The presence of God. You ever had that kind of experience where you just walk into a building and it's like walking into a cloud, like the Holy Spirit is, God is here. And he hadn't been in the great churches, Oh, I'm sure that that he was in one sense, but that experience of walking into the very presence of God wasn't so palpable there as it was in this tiny little church nestled in a neighborhood. And I sat down, I was taken aback, and I sat down on the steps of that church, and it's there that I heard once again my call, not just to be a Christian, but to be a priest in God's church. I can tell you more about that story some other time. But it's always stuck with me how in the grandness of the large cathedrals, God was not there, but in this small parish church, God was present through the prayers, the faithfulness, the singing of his people, and of course, his Holy Spirit. So here we are at Advent week four, and there's a theme that runs through the passage, at least one theme, and that's that God lifts up or exalts the defenseless peoples. He lifts up and exalts People in the Old Testament, he lifts up and exalts defenseless individuals. He lifts up and exalts defenseless souls. Do you see that string going all the way from Micah through Hebrews, through the Gospel, through the Psalms? Open with me if you haven't um, haven't already, which you haven't because I haven't asked you to, open with me to uh, not Micah, but Joshua chapter 15. So, Joshua chapter 15. It's not one of our readings today, but it bears great significance. Joshua chapter 15, verse 21 through 63. Let me know when you're there. uh, 15, 21 through 63. All right. What do you see there? Let me read the first line. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south towards the boundary of Edom were Kabzeel, Eder, Jager, Kinnah, Demona, Adah, Kadesh, Hazor, Ifnan, Zif, Telum, Beloth. It goes on and on and on, if you can see. And I had mercy on our lector today and didn't have him read that as one of our readings. <laughs> What's Micah talking about in the Old Testament passage, chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you're too little to be numbered. What's he talking about? He's talking, as the prophet, about this list back in Joshua. Do you see that? He's talking about this list Back in Joshua, according to scholar J.A. Moyer, there's 115 towns named when Joshua divides up Judah for Caleb, along with the surrounding villages. and what one is not named? You don't have to go through them all to know, Micah tells us, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Bethlehem is not named But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. Let's stop there for a moment. What's Micah saying here is that Bethlehem will not just be the place of King David's birth, will not just be the place of King David, who's already come and died, but will be the birthplace of a new king, a new savior. And God will bring forth for himself, notice in the text, this king. God will bring forth a great ruler, to rule the Hebrew peoples from this unknown town, to establish a kingdom that will go on forever. But let's talk about the people themselves, the Hebrew people, that is. If you've studied classical history, you see very quickly that the Hebrew people themselves are not noteworthy or powerful. It's true that they had their time in the sun, When the great king's way went down along the Mediterranean and they were on the merchant route. But in the larger scheme of things, they were nothing compared to the vast Egyptian Empire, or the Babylonian Empire, or the Syrian Empire, or the Persian Empire, or the vast Roman Empire that is in place when Jesus comes. Even God Himself tells us that the Hebrews, eh, you're not so special. Does that sound mean? Let me read it for you from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord is speaking through his word. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all peoples that are on the face of the earth, and here it is, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you. It's because the Lord loves you. Do you see here, back in Deuteronomy, we have the gospel in this passage. It's not because of what you can do that God has chosen you and exalted you. It's because of his love. We might also say because of his grace. But they continually turn away from God, don't they? We see it throughout the Old Testament. If you get anything from the Old Testament, you get this. That God's people are given chance after chance after chance and fail after time after time after time. And God doesn't abandon them. It's true he leaves them for a while. It's true that he brings enemies to chastise them. But he doesn't abandon them. If you ever want a summary of the Old Testament, look at Psalm 78. It's a great summary of what's going on in the Old Testament. I'll just read you a section of it. It goes on and on. It's a very long psalm. But the psalmist says of the Lord, and he brought them, the Hebrews, to this holy land, to the mountain, which is right-handed one. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet... They tested and rebelled against the Most High God. They did not observe his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among men. And delivered his people, he delivered his power to captivity and his glory to the hand of the foe. Of course, if you know Hebrew history, what's this talking about? This is talking about the fact that God's people were driven from their own land, taken into exile by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And then later the Persians finally let them come back. And yet, God has a heart for the small and defenseless because even choosing them as his people, he was choosing a small and defenseless people and he was choosing a people that didn't deserve him, frankly. If you go through the rest of the Old Testament prophets, you see time and time again God giving chances to his people, revealing other things to them, giving them his law, giving them his prophets. What do they do, Jesus tells us? You kill the prophets. The Old Testament lessons paint this vivid Advent picture. This picture filled with contrast. If you've been here the last four weeks, you've heard from the Old Testament warnings of destruction, of judgment. You've also heard blessings, the promise of rebuilding, of salvation. It's all throughout the Minor Prophets. The Old Testament outlines how sin affects nations, individual persons and even souls. But it also shows God's long-suffering grace towards nations, individual persons, and souls. In Micah, we see both judgment and grace, don't we? If you have your Bibles open to Micah, or if you want to look at your bulletin insert, just look with me. It goes back and forth, back and forth. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Judgment. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Mercy and grace. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Judgment and and justice. You get the idea. Constantly back and forth, Micah goes. Why? Because he's telling the story of God's people. His judgment, which is righteous, and his grace. God does the same with individuals with the hope of refining and purifying. Just as a father or mother disciplines and chastises, God does the same with individuals, with individual people. There's another theme here, and that's that God chooses small and defenseless individuals to bring about blessing. In fact, we learn that He prefers it if we pay attention. Look with me now at the gospel passage, Luke chapter 1. I'm sorry, it's Luke chapter 2. No, I was right the first time. Luke chapter 1. We see in verse 39 Mary visiting Elizabeth. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Take a step back from this for a moment. Who's Mary? Mary? She's just a teenage woman, girl, really, if we're honest. God chooses to exalt her from a position of insignificance to the mother of the church through Jesus Christ, the mother of our Lord himself, God himself. She becomes the instrument of redemption holding the instrument, I should say, of redemption. She brings forth Jesus because, why? Gabriel tells us, because God has chosen her. Luke 1.38, we hear Mary's response. She says, behold, I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary responds to that call from God. But it's all God's grace. Mary's chosen but in response to that, she chooses God. Not that there's an equal choice going on, mind you. God chooses her, and she responds in obedience. All God's people old and, in the Old and New Testament are represented in Mary. And it's to be credited to her that she says yes. But it's God who picks this defenseless small woman to be the mother of our Lord. And she's well aware of it. God is bringing through her that other ruler talked about in Micah 5.2. But there's another example in this passage of a small and defenseless person who's exalted. Have you caught it? Who is it that first greets Jesus? No. John the Baptist. Did you see it? John the Baptist in utero is the first one to greet Jesus. And what does he do? He leaps. He leaps in joy. We see here, if we see anywhere, how much God values life beginning in the womb and ending at death. We see here how God chooses in utero John the Baptist to leap out of joy For in utero, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? John greets Jesus. And Elizabeth, his mother, lends her voice to John's action in verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Do you see, she gives voice to John's action here. It's an amazing passage if we think about it for a minute. Finally, God lifts up the small and defenseless soul. While God comes to every people and every individual and every soul, it's to the small defenseless soul that he's able to save. It's the small and defenseless soul that he's able to change. Indeed, it's the small and defenseless soul that is a requirement to receive him. Jesus says in Matthew eleven six, 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And if we're honest, how can we not be offended by Jesus Christ? If we're looking at the real Jesus Christ that demands our all, if we're looking at the Ten Commandments that demands adherence to the law, if we're looking truly at a perfect God and know truly that we are an imperfect people, that's offensive. That's offensive. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Why? Because you don't have the pride to be offended by him. The soul is not so built up and fortified in its own confidence and its own pride and its own delusional, I've got myself together, that it can't come and throw itself at the foot of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, and see his grace and accept him as a gift. Of course... This is true of the soul that first encounters Jesus when we first become Christians, but it also remains true of the soul that already knows him. It remains true for the soul that's continually being sanctified by him, right? In our daily walk, E.B. Percy, scholar at Oxford of the 19th century, writes this. He says, the soul is constantly fluctuating between good and evil, called one way by God through inward inspirations and the other way by the enticements and habits of sin. Do you see that in yourself? I know I do. He continues, and wishing to follow God, yet not to be without its sinful pleasures, and knowing this is to be impossible, it hesitates. Her prophet, that is the soul's prophet, justly rebukes why thus cry aloud as though thou must be led into captivity by the devil? Hast thou no king aided by whose power thou mayest fight against all enticements, habits, and flesh? What's the good scholar saying here? He's saying that he's asking a rhetorical question. Yes, of course, as the Christian as the Christian soul, you have a king who has provided you with the power but have you hardened yourself to the Holy Spirit's power? Are you small of soul in a good sense, being humble? Are you meek? Are you waiting on the Lord? Or do you have it all together yourself, and you have no need for him? The answer for the, for the Christian, of course, is yes, we have such a king if we're not offended by him, if we're not offended by his discipline. If we're willing to submit ourselves to His grace, you see, it's only to the small and defenseless nation, it's only to the small and defenseless individual, it's only to the small and defenseless soul that God can actually be at work. When the Episcopal priest Phillips Brooks wrote, little town of Bethlehem, he wrote this as the final verse, and this is where we'll leave. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Friends, may you be small and defenseless in the face of Christ. Amen.